Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein Policy Director Kate McCandless is joined by Brownstein Advisors Drew Lippman, Peter Goodlow, and Laura Johnson for a discussion on the nomination of Alex Azar for HHS Secretary and his potential impact on healthcare policy, as well as drug pricing, the possibility of a provision in the tax bill removing the ACA's individual mandate, and the enduring repeal and replace effort. Welcome to the Brownstein Podcast Series. We are here again today with our healthcare group, uh, including Laura Johnson, policy advisor, well versed in issues on healthcare, early and secondary education and labor. Laura works directly with our clients to navigate all of these complex issues on Capitol Hill, track legislative issues, and craft strategies for federal healthcare programs and policies. Pete Goodlow of Council brings 30 years of experience in life sciences and public health, including 23 years of developing policy and legislation as an attorney for the U.S. House of Representatives. Pete's knowledge of health care policy stems from his time in the Office of Legislative Council on the Energy and Commerce Committee. In these roles, he has been deeply involved in developing policy and legislation related to the Food and Drug Administration, the National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and other health-related agencies. Drew Littman, Policy Director, previously served as Al Franken's Chief of Staff, where he led a staff of more than 30 and spearheaded all legislative policy and press initiatives. Before that, he served in the office of Senator Barbara Boxer, four of those years as her policy director. Immediately before joining Brownstein this year, Drew served as senior counselor to Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Matthews Burwell. And I'm Kate McCandless, policy director here at Brownstein. I lead our healthcare government affairs policy group, and I represent clients across the healthcare spectrum, including physician organizations, hospitals, consumer organizations, healthcare information technology companies, pharmaceutical biotech companies, and others with regard to all federal healthcare programs and policies. We are here again today discussing healthcare, and it seems as though every time we get together, uh, there is some sort of breaking news to announce. And so, uh, as of yesterday, we now have a new nominee for Health and Human Services Secretary. Uh, President Trump has officially nominated Alex Azar, who clerked for Antonin Scalia, uh, who was assistant on uh, Ken Starr's Whitewater investigation, who also has previously served at HHS as both the general counsel and uh, in the deputy secretary's role, and then made a bit of a career turn and uh, was as an executive at Eli Lilly, a pharmaceutical company, for uh, about 10 years. And so he brings a tremendous amount of uh, background to this particular role and potentially even a tremendous amount of political fodder for his confirmation hearing. Um, so let's dive in. Drew, as someone who's worked at HHS and also someone who has sat through a number of uh, nomination hearings, what do you think this one is going to look like? Well, thanks, Kate. I think uh, there's an opportunity for sparks to fly because President Trump Back, this is like a movie serial, like when we left you last at the end of the last episode, <laughs> was busy undercutting uh, help committee chairman Lamar Alexander and Senator Patty Murray, the ranking member, um, when they produced the bill after a heck of a lot of hard work to try and stabilize health insurance markets. Alexander never really snapped back at Trump. 
he held his fire. Uh, but that may have been because he realized he'd eventually get a confirmation hearing where he has a major home court advantage in terms of criticizing or exhorting or pleading with the Trump administration. He'll get to ask his hard questions. And I would expect him to use the opportunity to try and box in the nominee on supporting the markets, on stabilizing the markets, not on tearing them down, which might be his ideological inclination. Just one other observation. I think managerial competence is underrated in cabinet secretaries. They're often picked for strictly political reasons, but having worked inside and seeing what an incredible load it is to manage HHS, I think there's a lot to be said for for pulling in a former uh, Deputy Secretary, DepSec, as we would say, a former general counsel, someone who really knows his way around. They need a management upgrade, just a pure management upgrade. So Drew seems to be on board with this uh, selection. Laura, what do you think the other senators on the help and finance committees are going to have to say about this nomination? Well, the the reaction thus far has been kind of mixed. You know, Bernie Sanders was the, the first senator to come out in opposition to Azar's nomination. Um, senator Amy Klobuchar, who's very outspoken on drug pricing, has also come out in opposition to, to Azar and his background in the pharmaceutical industry. But, you know, thus far, Patty Murray, ranking member on the health committee, has not said anything. Thing. And I think that we've seen also some uh, statements that have been relatively supportive from other, um, you know, liberal, you know, typically li- liberal activists on, on this nomination. So I think we all expect drug pricing to be one of the lines of questioning from likely both Republicans and Democrats, given some of the things that the president has said. Um, Pete, why do you think they will focus on this particular topic as it relates to Alex Azar and his time at Eli Lilly? Well, the media, has, has, it's, it's easily predictable how some of this is going to go. Uh, the media, <laughs> just a, a few minutes ago, is circulating a new article talking about that while he was at uh, Lilly, a class action lawsuit was filed, which accused the company, uh, then under Azar's watch, of exploiting the drug pricing system to ensure higher profits for insulin. And the company's also been fined in Mexico for colluding on the drug pricing. So clearly he will be attacked in that way. But, but you have to look at the overall picture that, 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 that's the being developed of him, which is that he's not a bomb thrower. He's, he's thoughtful. You know, he was, used to be the general counsel at HHS. That's not a flashy position. He was well-respected there. Uh, as Drew said, uh, managerial competence is something uh, to be appreciated. And even the AIDS Institute has said that it's a good pick. And and typically, HIV activists are pretty liberal. And so here's someone who's satisfied with this choice. Well, and on the the topic of drug pricing, the administration has been a little all over the place. You know, the president has said, you know, not shocking that he's all over the place. Um, he said that uh, that drug companies are getting away with murder. You know, earlier this year, it was widely circulated that they were working on an executive order to address drug pricing. Uh, we've not heard much about that since. Um, so clears up every now and then. Yeah, <laughs> putting out Tweets fires about it. busily. Um, and I also think that it's interesting. You know, when the the president tweeted out that he was nominating Azar yesterday, that he said that he was going to address drug pricing. So it's interesting to put what is, you know, conceivably Azar's Achilles heel front and center um, with the nomination announcement. 
I think that's I think that's right. I think it'll be interesting also to see, uh, as Pete brought up, you know, there has been a swirl for quite some time as to whether or not addressing insulin prices uh, would be sort of the camel's nose under the tent at looking at drug pricing uh, writ large. And again, uh, to Laura's point, this seems to be the Achilles heel, at least of this uh, Indiana-based pharmaceutical company. Um, Indiana seems to be a really interesting theme that is running through HHS these days and, and healthcare generally. Uh, anybody care to comment on the, the long list of, of uh, Indianans? I don't even know if that's the right word. Hoosiers. Hoosiers. There yes. we go. Hoosiers. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yes, uh, Azar is just uh, the latest in, in a series. Uh, as we all know, the CMS administrator, Seema Verma, is from Indiana. The Surgeon General is from uh, Indiana. That's Jerome Adams. And even the Medicaid director at CMS, uh, Brian Neal, is from Indiana. Uh, and uh, the, as, as you know, the position of drug czar is, uh, is vacant, and one of the people being considered for that is uh, Indiana State Senator Jim Merritt. And so uh, Pence is also known as a person behind the scenes uh, negotiating by, uh, on behalf of the White House with Congress on uh, health care matters. It's, it's Pence that reportedly brought Mark Meadows and uh, Tom MacArthur together to come up with uh, the version of the repeal and replace bill that finally uh, passed the House. So one more question, I think, on the, uh, on the topic of the actual nomination hearing. You know, at, at Brownstein, we have a, a number of pharmaceutical clients, and we have been working with them throughout the course of this year on a variety of different times where the issue of drug pricing comes up. So there's a series um, of hearings that has initiated in the Senate Help Committee. It hasn't yet concluded. There's still expected to be one more. Uh, there have been hearings on, uh, in the Oversight Committee, in the Aging Committee, in, the, uh, in a, a variety of other committees. It's rumored that Energy and Commerce might take up a, a drug pricing uh, hearing at some point. I'm just wondering if, if I'm concerned about the number of times that, that drug pricing comes up on the Hill, does the nomination of Alex Azar and the potential for this one big explosive moment in the sun, does that make me more or less nervous as it relates to the overall issue of drug pricing? And I guess my question is, does this nomination hearing let a lot of air out of the balloon or does it fill it up with a lot more fodder for critics of the pharmaceutical industry? I think in that regard, the hearing may be less important than his performance. If, he's, if he doesn't do something or seem to be doing something about drug pricing pretty quickly, um, then I think senators will react. There's not much they can do to hurt him in the confirmation hearing because clearly he's going to, uh, unless there's something we just don't know, he's going to be confirmed and probably be confirmed pretty quickly. So, so he knows he has a stronger hand. Um, I think... It's these up-in-the-air issues like cost-sharing reductions. Again, I, I return to the Affordable Care Act, where you're likely to see some fire. I mean, everyone wants drug prices to be lower. We know that. But no one knows how to engineer that company by company. In the meantime, Scott Gottlieb, the FDA nominee, uh, the FDA, the head of FDA now under President Trump, seems to be doing a pretty good job with that. My guess is Azar will treat himself almost as conflicted out and just let Gottlieb deal with drug prices to the greatest degree possible. So he won't be, he may have an initiative to announce, but he won't be dealing with it hands-on. That would get politically very complicated. 
And after all, how much can the administration do about drug prices? And uh, Gottlieb has taken the lead. He's even inspired some confidence among Democrats. Uh, he's done some very aggressive things on uh, generic drugs. That's really the, the way to re- reduce prices is more generic drug competition. And Scott Gottlieb is fully invested in that. And there are provisions in the uh, recent uh, 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 user fee bill, uh, FDARA, uh, that also will spur uh, g- generic uh, competition. And while we're talking about players on the healthcare scene, uh, we, we should mention one who's not uh, commonly thought of, but this is Joe Grogan, who's at, uh, at OMB. He's the director for health matters at OMB. And uh, anything significant that uh, HHS does in terms of uh, of any aspect of healthcare is going to cross uh, his desk. And uh, he uh, has worked at FDA before, but he's also worked uh, for pharmaceutical companies. So Joe Rogan will definitely be a player in all this. Well, so let's take a turn and assume that eventually uh, Alex Azar is confirmed as HHS secretary. Um, As you mentioned, Drew, he will have to confront a lot of issues regarding repeal and replace efforts left over uh, from from this year, uh, and then what the administration does moving forward. What do you think will be the first thing that he is tasked with tackling, uh, and how do you think that his overall comments thus far on the Affordable Care Act and, and the markets that it has created will influence him versus how much influence he may be getting from the White House? Yeah, you mentioned um, that that the president can be unpredictable when it comes to these substantive issues. I don't know that he'll get clear guidance from the White House. I think there, there's actually a bit of a vacuum here, which Secretary Price simply didn't fill. Price wasn't even around for most of the key floor votes in the House or Senate, did not seem to be negotiating. I think a Secretary Azar would have a chance to shape his job or set his priorities um, if he's aggressive enough. I assume, again, because this affects so many members of the House and senators at home, he will try and figure out something to do with cost-sharing reductions and market stabilizations because it affects the premiums people pay and the availability of insurance. So it seems to me that although he seemed ideologically hostile to Obamacare, he's going to have to make peace with it uh, for the sake of Republicans in Congress. Do you think that means that he will support Alexander Murray? I think Alexander is going to demand that. Uh, Now, Alexander can't stop him from getting confirmed, but he can make it awfully difficult. So the president uh, clearly is is looking to his new HHS uh, secretary to take the lead on health care reform. And the president has said that he expects... uh, uh, action early next year, and of course, we could with next year we could have another reconciliation bill for 2019, and and get back into a situation where a majority vote through reconciliation could carry carry the day. So, uh, and so here's Azar signing up to be the um, president's warrior on the ACA repeal and replace. And is is Alexander Murray going to be enough for the? President, what kind of conversations do you think uh, Azar has had with the Trump administration about what's supposed to happen on repeal and replace? Well, but I think that your point about um, you know Alexander Murray being the thing that props up uh, the the existing system and you know subsequently makes premiums more affordable for individuals. Uh, 
you know, likely is not the outcome that the administration wants. I mean, that's where, as you said, that's where we left off with our last conversation. And so, you know, generally, if what you're what you're saying is true, that there was a, a bit of a vacuum of leadership at HHS as it relates specifically to the repeal and replace efforts, I think it's conceivable that the administration thinks that they can run the same playbook, this time with a better quarterback, and get a different outcome. Um, and so potentially, you know, passing something like Alexander or support some passage of, of Alexander Murray or any other stabilization for that matter may not be in the best interest of the administration who wants to continue to see the markets, uh, you know, move toward crumbling or imploding or exploding. Uh, and, and then they'll go at this again, as Pete said, under a reconciliation for uh, for FY 2019 and, and essentially run a very similar bill through a very similar Congress, this time with a more uh, organized leadership. So let's change the frame a little bit, if you don't mind, and look at this in terms of the elections that took place just a week ago. Um, Virginia, purple to light blue state, uh, clean sweep for Democrats. Um, voters were asked, there was more than one exit poll, but whichever exit poll you looked at, when voters were asked what their number one issue was, health care was overwhelmingly number one. Virginia is not an expansion state. Um, it's unclear who, who's in control of the Virginia House of Delegates, but it's going to be close one way or another. Um, I would expect now a push to expand in Virginia. Um, it certainly seems that Republicans associated with Trump, understanding that health care was the number one issue, inspired a lot of Democratic turnout and a lot of Democratic anger. So I think there will be even more pressure now on the White House from the Hill to lay off repeal and replace it's politically, it's, I, I know they promised it to constituents, but when it comes to actually taking away the benefits, that's tricky. Well, and to Drew's point, uh, one of our Brownstein colleagues was uh, very involved with the Northam campaign down in Roanoke and was a precinct captain down there. And to parse out the the healthcare related returns, the number one issue within vote that voters cared about was pre-existing conditions. Drug pricing was second, but you know v- voters are really focused on you know access to, to care. They've been educated somewhat inadvertently, I think, <laughs> over the course of the year. But back to Azar signing up for this job. I mean, the, the the very same senators who stopped it before they're still there, and the president seems to think that uh, that uh, Azar will, will help with this uh, effort. I mean, one of the reasons Tom Price is gone. Apparently, it was because he didn't deliver on health care reform. And so uh, why does Azar sign on for, for this possibly futile exercise? What, what, why would this time around be any different than last there time? There are a lot of reasons to want to be a cabinet secretary that are independent of whether you think you're going to bring about a specific uh, substantive uh, conclusion. People generally say yes to offers to be in a president's cabinet. Well, and I think it's we haven't yet seen uh, enough evidence on what Azar's position is on, uh, you know, changes to Medicaid. He apparently had made some favorable comments about the House bill, which obviously made sweeping changes to the Medicaid program. But there hasn't been a lot of conversation about him specifically on Medicaid. I think there's a lot of uh, there. There have been places where he's been quoted uh, specifically talking about the individual insurance market and how complicated it is and how it isn't built for 
uh, you know, projecting risk appropriately. And so I can see him engaging on that side a little bit more and potentially hoping to separate the conversation between the individual marketplace and uh, the, the block granting of Medicaid. Uh, because we're seeing some changes, potential changes in Medicaid uh, at the HHS level, you know, absent any changes from, uh, you know, legislative changes. So if he could make the case to the administration that you should tackle this uh, in two different places, and, and not just to the administration, frankly, I think to Paul Ryan as well and other advocates in the in the House and Senate who would like to see, uh, you know, sweeping changes to Medicaid, uh, you could potentially see a different type of repeal effort coming from someone who has the background that Azar has. Or perhaps there could be a, a series of incremental changes in, in the healthcare area that you could convince the president to consider a victory. It's all about the packaging, right? I, I think it also, one important variable, I think, is tax reform. Because then you have um, a deficit-financed tax cut and I assume that the longer-term plan for Republicans, and again, Speaker Ryan, this would be right in his sweet spot, is to get that $1.5 trillion from Medicare and Medicaid, especially if you have these expiring provisions that you want to renew um, after five years or after 10 years. If you're looking to get money someplace without raising taxes, assuming growth falls short of the ultra-dynamic scoring projections, uh, the place they're going to look is is entitlements. And, and that leads you right to block-granting entitlements, which, of course, Democrats will bitterly oppose. But but I think tax uh, tax reform is an important first step, or, or if it's blocked, uh, averts a first step toward major entitlement cuts. Well, and just one last point on that. I do think, and I will attribute this to one of our other Brownstein colleagues, um, that, that tax reform does have significant implications on the beginnings of health care reform 2.0. Uh, and that, of course, is the conversation around the individual mandate repeal. Mm -hmm. And it seems as though there is some toxicity related to including individual mandate repeal in tax reform, although I think we're quickly moving down a path that doesn't include any sort of Democratic support for this uh, current legislation. However, uh, as you said, if you're looking at the out years and you're trying to maintain cuts or maintain uh, tax levels and the, in the, the later part of this budget window, uh, repealing the individual mandate certainly gets you into that place. And apparently, and I, and I am no expert on this, but uh, repealing the individual mandate in the, out, in the late years, uh, year eight, year nine, uh, actually allows you then to uh, achieve the the savings to continue these current rates or the rates that are proposed in the legislation. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with this uh, addition of a health care repeal to our our tax debate. But that's uh, that's the one thing that that you don't know that I'm watching these days. Drew, tell me something that that I don't know that we should be watching out for. Thanks, Kate. Uh, inside HHS, the way we looked at health care reform was for it to be successful, you had to have what Secretary Burwell always referred to as delivery system reform, which meant changing the way you pay for health care so that it's team-oriented in terms of the provision of care and results-based in terms of the outcomes. In other words, um, more like the way the Mayo Clinic does it, where they provide high-quality care, but it's also very cost-effective. The Trump administration is quietly rolling back the Obama administration's uh, mandates, essentially, to participate in, in uh, bundled payment 
programs so that to a large degree these will either disappear or become optional that takes away the incentive and it's an incentive that doctors some doctors chafe that but it takes away that incentive to um, hold down the cost curve more generally holding down the cost curve only comes with delivery system reform you're never going to cut drug prices enough the population is growing there are more and more treatments available more people are now insured so if you're going to bring down payments it's through delivery system reform and the trump administration is trying to eliminate it almost completely I would like to address that, actually. Uh, On your point, uh, there was a a big article in the New York Times making exactly that point. But I I will agree that the administration uh, doesn't like mandatory programs. And, but I don't think that's the same as saying the administration has no interest in, in pursuing value-based approach. I mean, one of the most successful programs, the, the Bundled Payments for Care Improvement Initiative, BPCI, is a voluntary program, and there's a, there's a, a lot of interest in it. And uh, we, we have some clients in this space, so we're familiar with this, and the physicians, if you give them the right incentives, they very much want to take control of, 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 of their lives and, 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 how to, and their patients' lives and how to practice medicine. So the push against mandatory by the administration is correct, but I'm just not sure that means that, uh, that they, they have no interest in pursuing uh, value-based uh, models. And another score on value-based care is, you know, these, uh, these authorities CMS has to launch these uh, demonstration projects like BPCI, they have authority to waive, for example, uh, the Stark Law, which can, uh, which actually restricts cooperation among physicians in the way that some of these uh, models contemplate. So the Stark Law was first. Later on came the ACA and the authority to do these demonstration projects. So Congress, uh, through the ACA, included authority to uh, waive Stark Law restrictions, for example, which is uh, <clears throat> concerns uh, physician referrals. And so the, um, but what about outside the demonstration projects? How are we going to launch value-based care more broadly? Well, there are bipartisan bills uh, introduced recently in the House uh, and the Senate to try to. Uh, uh, coordinate the Stark Law restrictions with these efforts at value-based care. So that's something to keep an eye on, Con- congressional action perhaps on Stark Law's relation to uh, alternative payment models. Well, and I would also say that if the Trump administration is in fact looking to uh, scale back on value-based care, then it sounds as though they have found a good friend uh, in our friend, Mr. Alex Azar. He was quoted at a bipartisan policy center forum back last summer saying that uh, where you're where you're looking for these value-based frameworks and you're looking for uh, some savings achieved from value-based models, it's all coming from data that's coming from Europe where they have a single-payer system. And that is what he called the second-best market-based system in the world. So I think that he probably would agree that, uh, that those value-based models might need uh, an additional look and maybe will fit right in with the Trump uh, framework. Laura, tell me something that we should be looking out for. Um, so much of our conversation has been focused at the federal level. I just want to bring up a quick point on the states. Uh, last week, a lot of the, the attention was focused on the Virginia election, but there was also a ballot initiative in Ohio, Issue 2, which was closely modeled off after the uh, California ballot initiative last year, Prop 61, which would um, essentially cap the uh, reimbursement for drugs at the, the 
price that the VA pays. The VA has the ability to negotiate uh, prices with manufacturers. Um, there are, uh, to date, uh, in 2017, over 80 bills that have introdu- been introduced in state legislatures, and only uh, seven states have passed some sort of uh, drug pricing uh policy. So, you know, I think that the it's going to be interesting to see going forward, you know, what are the ballot initiatives and what are the state legislatures putting out on drug pricing? And Brownstein does have a very robust state uh, lobbying practice in several states. So uh, I'm sure that a number of our clients will be asking us for advice on those and, and a number of other issues as we move into another round of uh, state legislative activity. Well, thank you all for joining us today. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.